Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, brand made famous by John McEnroe, Pete Sampras, and Gabriella Sabatini. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com and use the code CRAIG30 in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. He grew up in Southern California and has written about tennis since the early 80s. His work has appeared in New York Times, Tennis Week, Tennis Magazine, and The Great Racket Magazine. He is the historian at large for the International Tennis Hall of Fame and a frequent contributor to both Tennis Channel and Tennis.com. Joel Drucker is today's guest. My man, are you ready to go? Oh, by the way, where are you? I'm in Oakland. I'm at my house in Oakland, California. You're in Oakland. So you're not going to the Culver Studios? No, my stuff will all, my stuff will all be tennis um, from my house, from my computer. Everything stays in Oakland. Well, I mean, I'm in Oakland. Yeah, I've been, in, I've been here since March. Mm-hmm. I've been in March since we, since we left SoCal. But are there people in the Culver? Are there people at the Tennis Channel? Oh, I think they're doing that. They're going to do a pregame show from um, uh, seven to t- seven to eight Pacific. Okay. Ten, you know, and they're going to do that. They're going to do that, and they're going to put that. But I think they're going to have their announcers zooming, and then they're going to do that from there. Someone will probably be like the hub. Like I, I, sec- I suspect Brett will probably host it from from Hayden from Culver City, and Husko will be producing it from there. Okay. Now, gentlemen, you hear is a prolific tennis writer. He is the historian at large for the Tennis Hall of Fame. He is a uh, fellow contributor, although he contributes much, much more than I do to my favorite periodical, Racket Magazine. Uh, he is the reporter for Tennis.com and uh, a friend of mine, the great Joel Drucker, my man. It is uh, always fun to talk with you. How are you, man? Great to talk with you, Craig. Always fun. You know, you and I go back way back to when we were working together at HBO in the late 90s, and, and you were also working with Andre Agassi, and, and we've worked at the French Open, and it's just really great to be, be part of the show and, and talk with you as we dig into some tennis. Well, I always kept saying I wanted to wait to talk to you when you had a grandiose piece rolling out and you indeed have that we're going to talk we're going to get to that um as you know we typically do a five set format but i'm gonna skip the first set and move right into the second because the business of tennis the on the court report is where it's at uh we have a lot to unpack i want to get first and foremost into what i think is for the world the most important things in tennis and and that to me is the was the protest, uh, the no tennis the other day that Naomi Osaka really spearheaded. What were your perceptions of that? Well, that was a remarkable step that she took. I mean, her social consciousness, and it shows a lot. It's interesting how in tennis, a lot of times uh, these things have happened over the years in tennis for many decades, and often they're often fueled by by women doing them. I mean, we go Naomi, and you can go back to, to Venus Williams and Martina Navratilova, Billie Jean King. Hold on a second, though. Um, to be clear, Naomi basically said, I'm not playing vis-a-vis the, the NBA players in an effort to protest what happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin, shut down their playoff games, right? And Naomi said, I'm shutting down, too. 
That's right. And she took that step. And then soon enough, the tournament said, we'll take that step. We'll take that collectively. But she, she spoke first. She put out this tweet, very thoughtful about her, her feelings toward these things. And she said she wasn't going to play. And uh, the next day after that, I talked to a lot of people in the greater tennis community to get their thoughts about it, about uh, uh, Martina Navratilova, Billie Jean King. Uh, Did any of them, aside from just sort of commending Naomi, were any dissatisfied? Did any of those greats think that maybe more needs to be done and such? Well, I, I'll tell you the best comment I got. I spoke to a guy named Lenny Simpson, who was an Arthur Ashe protege, five years younger than Arthur. And at one point I said, I said what would Arthur have made of this? And he says, Arthur would have said, not bad, Osaka. And he said, that was Arthur's way of saying, that's a start. That's your start. So let's see your finish. Now, granted, she just made her statement, and you don't expect someone to create a foundation and a cause and a whole program within 24 hours. But I think it was Arthur's way of saying, good, that's something. You've, you've made a statement. Now let's see some action, and, and what, do we, what do we got here? And I thought that was really neat the way Lenny said that, because Arthur Ashe was very powerful but very understated in the way he spoke. And I think, actually, Naomi Osaki would, Osaka would enjoy that that, you know, a low-key way, but of making a big point. I think one of the more interesting things has been Naomi finding her, I wish I could say voice, but it's like finding her social media presence, I guess, because she definitely still seems terrified of public speaking. Um, I even watched her interview with Chris McKendry yesterday, and she never quite gets to the nitty gritty, but she gets there on social media and she gets well, there in a very poignant and meaningful way. We all know people and we've worked in media, Craig, for a long time. And you know, those people are sometimes a little better articulating their thoughts in writing than in front of audiences. And look, Arthur Ashe was an introvert too. He was a fine speaker, but there was a part of him that was very methodical. And when Lenny told me this, he said Arthur Ashe would use that phrase when he practiced with people too. Like you'd hit a good serve. He said, not bad, not a bad serve. And it was kind of a way of letting you know, okay, let's see some more. Let's see what you bring instead of just saying, fantastic, that's great. I mean, he's very measured and, and looking to see. And I think we're all, gonna be, we're all intrigued to see how Naomi and some other players, uh, uh, Martina spoke very positively of Coco Goff, who spoke earlier this summer, gave a wonderful speech. Um, and let's just see how this continues to unravel, unravel, unroll, roll in the years to come. With, and again, social media plays a different role in it than it didn't exist years ago. So now there's these other ways that we can get ideas across and interact with people. And what I think what was neat about what Naomi did, and there are other things in the history of tennis where tennis players have done things to aid the cause of tennis. But you don't always see, and we don't have to expect them to see, athletes taking a stand on behalf of something other than just their own tennis. I mean, it was something, it's, Naomi spoke about something that didn't have anything to do with her tennis life. It had to do with the world. That's interesting. That's what Arthur Ashe was very much about, going to South Africa and things like that. Everybody can kind of jump on this, and maybe they could do something special. I'm not sure that the one-day protest felt like enough to me. I'm going to share an Arthur Ashe anecdote that I had more than 30 years ago. I had, uh, I didn't know him that well, and it was he was ending around the time I was starting. But still, I had a chance to have a three-hour dinner interview with him in 1989, 
and we're each reading the same book at the same time, a book called Parting the Waters about the civil rights movement. And one of the things Arthur Ashe said, and his friend Lenny Simpson said to me the other day was that Martin Luther King, he wasn't just trying to transform um, a, a single group of people. He was trying to transform the world and have the world see something. In the same way, I'm gonna make a tennis connection. Billie Jean King does not like to think that she just helped women's tennis. She helped tennis. She helped the whole world. And so a lot of the things that are going on now are designed to, not designed, are affecting the way we might see the whole world. So it's a very interesting time. Come on, let's go. Now, last night, you know, at the crack of dawn, Ben Rothenberg and Chris Clary from the New York Times, uh, I think mostly Ben and, and with report, as it was, the byline was with reporting from Chris, dropped a interesting story. They broke a story that Vasek Pospisil and Novak and I think Isner and Isner have resigned from the ATP Player Council and are setting up their own, as we say in, <laughs> as we say in Hollywood, shingle. They're setting up their own shingle. They're setting up their own union. What can you tell me about this, Joel? Well, I think what they're a little concerned about the what the leadership of the ATP, they've had some um, issues, concerns about how the, the ATP is being run. And I guess they want to kind of speak on behalf of the players. The ATP, I'll try, I'll summarize, has, has since 1990 been this interesting mix of tournament directors and players. So it's a mix of union of, of labor and management. And so that's always been a little bit of a, of a complicated critter to hold together. And so I think now these players, as Pospisil and Djokovic, are saying, okay, let's, let's make, look out for the players and what are we going to do? And of course, there's been a lot of dialogue in recent years about what percentage of the gross revenue players get. And that's really it, right? It's that there's a group of players, generally speaking, that want more money from these tournaments, particularly, I believe, the slams. The slams are making a fortune. And the players want a bigger cut. We've had, I've had Yanko Tipsarovich on my show. He said that that is absolutely the situation that the players are getting completely ripped off. And then, you know, for a while now through the, through the pandemic in particular, there's been a lot of talk about the fact that, you know, 70 guys can make a living and the rest of the players suffer. So there's really about the money, isn't it? Well, Look, this stuff is invariably a lot of times about the money, but then I guess my question is the, the marketplace and the money. And what I always want to see whenever I hear about these players' movements, these players looking to advocate for themselves, and, and look, here's a guy like Novak. It doesn't need to be about the money for him because he's got plenty as much as he wants to create maybe wealth for his fellow players. All right, now what I always want to hear from the players, what are you going to do to make sure we care to see you play? So it becomes, so what are you going to do to create better better box office and so that you're you're worthy of such just because you play the game well just because you're proficient with a racket yeah I, I mean you and I know Craig there are 200 to 400 guys who are pretty skilled I mean if we watch number 350 practice with Novak it's pretty good in a practice so what are you going to do to and, and I and I rarely ever hear them talk about what's it going to mean for the public what's it going to mean for the fans how are you going to bring yet more value that's going to make me want to see you and 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 have your money but but here's their start, and they want to start their, their movement. And I, I'm intrigued. It's also it's fascinating this is happening in the middle of a pandemic. 
you know, people are, people are dying, people are being diagnosed with it. Novak had COVID. And so to launch it during it, some intriguing timing, but when is a good, when is the right time to do something like this? You know, when is the right time? So who knows? It also, I have to, I, I mean, I, you know, I don't know if this is conspiracy theory fodder, but a year ago, year and a half ago, Justin Gimmelstab was leading a group to, for him to get that job, that Gaudenzi job, the way I understand it. And Novak was backing him. Justin got into trouble and, and Gaudenzi got this job. I think it was a surprise to quite a few people. I, I'm curious if this is a response. Because it feels it, like it could, be, it could be like a next step. It's like, wow, maybe we're not so pleased about Denzi. So now, and Pospisil had made some um, a number of comments last year about some other things, and he put out a a very thoughtful series of statements about what the player union needs to be and how the players need to represent themselves. He's really making some some thoughtful cases, points on behalf of the players and and what they needed to do to to align and kind of sing for their supper and and do stuff is very thoughtful so this could be this could definitely be a, an outgrowth of some of those early occurrences yeah and it's, although it's so it's so byzantine and mysterious you know every grand slam before every grand slam event there are these atp meetings you hear about them and they're happening and it's kind of like the bohemian grove or the trilateral commission what what emerges from this there was a vote there was a talk there's a but it's never there's not a lot of communication I mean, I mean, I learn more from the sport about the, the unions from the sports that I don't cover. You know, you hear things, the NBA agitating, NFLPA agitating. What, 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 okay, tennis, what, what do you want? Yeah, you want what we all want. I want more money and less work. That's what I want. I want more money and less work. Don't you, Craig? More money, less work. To be honest, I don't think I could work less, but I definitely am down for more money. But what you said about the value of players is a perfect segue into, you know, what's going to start on Monday, right? The U.S. Open. I kept seeing players come out of the draw, and in my mind, I didn't care. But then when I saw the draw, particularly the women's draw, I was like, "Wow, this is a very depleted draw." This, yeah. This is right. a very this is a very depleted draw. I'm still watching. Listen, you got. I'm still watching this thing from pillar to post. I don't stop. But there's a lot of players not playing, man, for for reasons that are for, for a variety of reasons. Um, and on the men's all side too. All, all per, well, actually, one reason: COVID. Mostly COVID. There's no right. That's the reason. Is Stan Wawrinka really not playing because of COVID? Is that the thought, or is there? Is it that they're just wanted to be? in better position to go play well on clay. I don't, I just, I well, can't. That's okay too, but it's like these things are all purely personal, you know, pure, totally acceptable. Is that a fact? Is Hollop not playing? Is Ash Barty really not coming because of, because of COVID? Well, look, look what, the, look what this has caused in the world. This COVID, it's COVID has caused a whole tidal wave of, of impacts on travel and health and families and quarantining and fitness and conditioning, you know, this is, I, I wrote this recently, this is the most raw any tennis player has ever been in August in the history of the sport. 100%. So all these, all these people have taken, have opted to take their personal form of executive action. And it's kind of, yeah, you're, you're, that's probably a good point that a number of players in Europe are kind of 
weighing the chips, like, hmm, two or three weeks on hard courts in New York, you know, the stress of being in New York and the bubble, gee, I want to get ready for Roland Garros. You know, look, and we knew we could see this coming when the Roland Garros organizers decided, okay, well, we're going to schedule our tournament. We're going to do what we want and we're going to schedule it after the US Open. Maybe at that point, a lot of us were thinking, well, is there even going to be a US Open, but there'll be a Roland Garros. So just... Well, I talked to Mark Petchy at, at some time early on in this whole mess, and he he was like, man, they had to do that because if they, they, they can't afford to not play. So they went for their dates, and that was it. Like, they knew that that was their last opportunity for good weather or whatever it was, right? Like, they just jumped on those dates, the French. And never mind the five to ten tournaments that were scheduled during that time that now some of these Asia tournaments – aren't happening already but the 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 French just said all right we're gonna take these dates it's like wait a second what about I got a tournament here I got a tournament so then the whole uh, a lot of parts of the calendar look what we've got we've got uh Madrid rescheduled and then canceled Rome uh rescheduled and it's 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 okay but it's just all this stuff so I think for the players the players are gonna think okay what's what's my tennis life gotta look like I'm I live in Europe I mean you and I knew we, you and I had a suspicion about Nadal that Nadal was going to put his put his 34 year old body through hardcore tennis for a few weeks and then come back to Europe and play his beloved major. But didn't Rafa win it last year? Yeah, didn't he win the U.S. Open? Yes, he did. Incredible that they're not defending their 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 titles. Um, it's an incredible moment in time. Is uh. Like the, nothing any of us have ever seen. Yeah. And, not just, and obviously, we don't just mean tennis. You know, we mean like you know, 20 million people being diagnosed with this and economies and people out of work and just a whole series of things that are un- unbelievable. It's totally nuts. Brandon Nakashima is, happens to be um, someone of interest. He's a person of interest, I would say, for this tournament. Um, what do you know about him? Brandon Nakashima, a very hardworking player, kind of like in the cut from the Novak cloth. I mean, it's like he's almost he's almost to like Novak in, in certain ways of style, like uh, like Dimitrov was to Federer. You know, he's got he, a nice. But, but he murders the ball, man. He, he's a great striker. Yeah, great striker. But we'll see. You know, it's funny. This is an interesting period for him. It's like, yeah, I'm playing a, my first major during a pandemic. These guys in here. Let's see what his uh, let's see what his journey. It's it's a long journey. You know, a few years ago, I was watching Osaka play at a tournament, and a friend who I play with, who follows the game, said, "This this Osaka, she can do all sorts of things." I said, "We'll see." And then when she won, he he called me. When she won majors, he called me. He said, "Oh, there you are, saying you'll see, we'll see, Joel. You were you didn't think she was going to do anything." I said, "No, I didn't say she was or she wasn't. My job is to see. My job is I'm not a." I'm not a venture capitalist. You know, I don't put, I don't invest money in tennis players. I mean, I've seen, I've seen too many. I've seen too many who think, yeah, the real deal. And they have a career. But I don't know. Nobody knows. Um, one thing that we have seen, though, since, the, since like, really that Kentucky tournament, I felt like the stakes began then, for me at least. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, I think the one thing we saw, though, is how the lack of how these empty courts is the great equalizer, man. Players that are typically out of their league 
are no longer out of their league. These are like practice matches and they're battling and it's, and, and the, the scales seem to be tipped. Tipped, tipped in favor of the person who's used to playing in front of fewer people? Tipped in favor of the player who is less prominent. Yes, I think because, so. Uh, because, well, there's a whole, we call it almost an energy crisis. I was watching a match uh, last weekend before some players, a couple of players. I wrote about this with uh, Sloane Stevens, and she won a big point to get back on serve. No crowd, no yelling, no energy. And you could see, because she then lost her serve in the next game, you could see almost like, wow, where was that energy boost from the crowd to help me hold again and get the match? You're right. And so maybe the player who's used to playing in front of smaller crowds is like, well, I'm used to this. I'm used to, uh, I'm used to breaking serve and nobody cheering for me anyway. It's a great point. Yeah, Tennis Sandgren came to mind. And then I was watching him play and I was thinking about him. And he's so athletic and kind of guy to me that I thought was going to maybe take this unusual moment as sort of a, a challenge in a way that maybe others wouldn't. And... You know, he has a very tough first-round match against Roberto Bautista Agu. However, I thought he could – he's the kind of player that wouldn't care about the crowd because he's he spent years grinding in front of no crowd. <laughs> well, and he also put in a lot of time during this time away from tennis on his fitness. I mean, I, I saw him during World Team Tennis, and he, and he put in a lot of time to get his body as fit as possible. And so that's a, that's a tough first round. That's a, that's a little bad luck for someone. But he's going to beat – a lot of players on the other, you know, he's ranked somewhere around like 56, 58, somewhere in that range. But these days, what's a ranking anyway? 30, 40, 80, what, what's that ranking mean? What's been accrued over the last few months anyway? He's nothing. So, so in a way, he might be in it with a chance versus RBA, who happens to be, though, who's a, who's a, who's a rock-solid player who just lost in the semis to, to Novak in Cincinnati, New York. So that's a tough match for tennis. That's a... That's a tough matchup. Let's just quickly, is there anything that stands out to you in the men's draw that, um, I don't know, is kind of interesting? How about, uh, how about Kevin Anderson and uh, Zverev in the first round? That's an interesting matchup. You've got the two big servers. And, uh, and, well, Zverev, and Zverev with, this, with, with these horrible service yips that continue and continue, it's like, you know, well, there was a there was a second baseman for the Yankees who ended up like off the out of the league, I think, because he couldn't throw the ball to first. And Steve Sachs with the Dodgers. Yeah, there's been like these athletes that all of a sudden get a get a hiccup and a tick, and he has it, man. He has a bad, bad, bad problem with his serve. Well, there are a few interesting matches. I mean, it's funny we mentioned Anderson. Um, uh, Paolo Lorenzi and plays Nak Nakashima. That's kind of interesting. Um, Jack Sock and uh, Cuevas. This is all in in one little quadrant. So um, some interesting, uh, yes, yeah, definitely some some intriguing intriguing matches in the first round. But again, who knows who knows how sharp some people are tennis wise. There's so many so much uncertainty. It's it's not it's fitness. It's match play. It's weather. I mean, golly, what happens when a when a player is say, playing his second straight? Four setter, and he's the guy's hardly. And there's, we all know there's no quite no substitute quite for match play. So how's that going to be? And it turned it's really hot that day in New York, and and all this kind of stuff. And then also just the just the undertow of the dread of this COVID. You know, 
getting tested, getting your temperature, being in the bubble, being this awareness. I was like, wow, there's, there's something going on in the world that's really challenging, threatening. And as, as I mentioned earlier, the women's draw is, um, is, is depleted, but it, it's, you know, whoever comes through has got to win seven matches in two weeks, and that's no joke. Well, I guess the asterisk in the room is the question about people raising the asterisk question, right? That's a thing. And I, I wrote about this recently. My colleague Steve Tigger and I write a thing called The Rally. We go back and forth, and we wrote about this about a week ago. And I, I did this. I said, look, I'm at a party in the year 2025, five years from now. And I'm sipping my kale smoothie and eating my organic snap peas and whatever. And someone brings up the U.S. Open, and they say, oh, yeah, she won it that year during the pandemic. And I think, well, yeah, what's going on? The world was turned upside down, 20 million people diagnosed, six figures of Americans, more than 100,000, 150,000 Americans have died from this. And this person came to New York and won a major. No asterisk. You know, this isn't like a boycott or a political thing. There you have it. And you beat, as you said, Craig, you beat seven other professionals. And, and that's that. Whether you're, a, whether you're a prominent player, winning yet another, or you're a newcomer, winning your first. Is there anything in that? I, I agree 100%. I mean, I, there's no asterisk for me. The asterisk, like you said, is for the, for the dopes that think that the tournament is a... Is a well, they're for the big-timers. They're for people who like diamonds, but they don't like them in the rough. Anything you like in there that, you know, there's a, there's a couple of places in that draw that look like wide open for some, some new faces to do some damage. Well, the player I was, uh, new face, but the player I was, uh, I, I, the players I was, I was so bummed that this uh, Osaka and Azarenka final didn't happen because of those both two players of neat journeys. It's neat to see Vika playing some, fine tennis again. I mean, she got to the finals of the U.S. Open twice a few years ago. She's number one in the world. So to, to have seen her play Osaka would have been a neat kind of generational thing. And I'm hoping that Azarenka can have a, make a good go of it in New York. Uh, a lot, you know, there are a lot of some interesting... Um, and by the way, Vika um, played unbelievable tennis all week and she, she was getting beat against Kanta in the first set. Um, she saved like eight set points and she lost the set and he just felt like she's coming baby. And she came, she absolutely pistol whip Kanta. And you're right. I was looking forward to see her play Naomi. Um, I'm not surprised though that Naomi pulled out. They, she, they, they played a lot of tennis in general. And well, she had this hamstring injury that was quite vivid. That was, we could quite see it during her match yesterday. Oh, is that right? The one other thing I think we should note is, you know, Mukova plays Venus Williams. Could this, this, we say it every year, but this, for all intents and purposes, could be Venus's last U.S. Open then. Oh, man, who knows? You know, God, like she's 40. Isn't that amazing? She played there when she was 17, got to the finals when Ash Stadium debuted and had that great run. Arena Sperlea, she beat in the semis. That was an incredible effort. And now here she's at 40. Amazing, man. Let's move into our third set. This is the portion of our show where we talk about your career. My man, you know, you've been bouncing around, you know, writing for so long, but I don't know your story. Where does your, where does your tennis begin and where does your writing begin? 
Oh, wow. All right. Well, yeah, I'm kind of like, I'm kinda, you saw the movie Almost Famous? I'm kind of like Cameron Crowe with a garage band. I played a lot of tennis growing up in Southern California. Um, I started, I'm a child of the tennis boom. 12 years old, 1972, West Los Angeles, public parks. And uh, I went to Tony Traber tennis camp. So I had, I, I wasn't a greatly accomplished tennis player. I mean, I was happy to win one or two rounds in a junior tournament. But, you know, I took some licks from people like Elliot Telcher and Robert Vantoff. I mean, these guys beat me in 35 minutes. Uh, and, but I was around the game. And then I didn't think I was ever going to write about it. I thought I was going to be a lawyer or do something else. But I had a chance to write about tennis just before I graduated college in the spring of 1982. And that coincided with a, with a college paper I wrote about Jimmy Connors that helped me get to know Connors and write about him. I was a month out of college and I got a chance to interview Jimmy Connors three weeks after he won Wimbledon. And that helped, that was part of my early writing, writing for Inside Tennis Magazine. And how did you make that interview happen? This was a, this is kind of the world I was in. I had a, I had gone to Tony Traver tennis camp and I had a camp counselor named Dave Engelberg and Dave and I had kept in touch. I'd worked at that camp. Dave happened to play at the Beverly Hills Tennis Club, which you know, our friend Ann White runs it now. Dave was a member there, and he saw, I sent him this college paper I wrote about Connors in the spring of 82, before Connors won Wimbledon, saying how much I liked Jimmy Connors. And Dave goes, I'm gonna leave that for, uh, I'll leave that for Jimmy at the club. He's gonna be in town. This was at, and then Connors wins Wimbledon. I'll leave it for Connors at the club. Jimmy was playing an exhibition in Southern California versus Bjorn Borg in July 82. So Dave leaves the essay for Connors and Dave and I were gonna go to the exhibition the next day, but the night before he said, hey, let's drop by the club. Jimmy sometimes drops by there at, uh, at night. And Jimmy had, had, had played one other match in the exhibition. So sure enough, on this Saturday night in July 82, Jimmy drops by the club. And for what it's worth, so people should know, and you've been there, Craig. It's not a country club. It's a tidy little five-court club. It's a pretty intimate club, the Beverly Hills Tennis Club. And Dave and I are hanging out there. And guess who walks in? The Wimbledon champ, Jimmy Connors. And as soon as Jimmy sees Dave, he says, Dave, wow, that, thanks. How are you doing? That was a great piece you left for me. Thanks. And Dave goes, well, meet the guy who wrote it. And Connors goes, oh, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Well, boy, I ever do anything for you? I go, yeah, how about an interview? So he says, great, sure. So soon enough, that happened. And that kind of, I'd been doing some other writing in tennis, but that was a very, how would we call it, propulsive kind of thing. And that's where I almost come up with like the almost famous, you know, like the, you're kind of embedded, you know, with the, with the band and I'm already with the rock star. I mean, it's almost like, it's almost freaky that one of my first interviews when I'm 22 years old is with the Wimbledon champ. Or maybe the also game is so much smaller than and also, you, your game was smaller, but you made your luck. You made your luck. But then, but then I ended up spending, you know, there, there isn't, you know, Craig, because you've done this yourself. There isn't like a full-time job that says, good, here's the full-time job. Be the West Coast tennis writer for something. I spent 10 years working for some public relations firms that had nothing to do with tennis. And I kept a pinky toe in tennis. I'd freelance for a local magazine. I'd go to the U.S. Open on vacation time. And then around 1993, 10, 11 years after this first flurry of things, I started writing more as a freelancer. And then I started doing stuff in te tennis, magazines. I kind of stumbled into television. Is there a favorite piece of work you've done? Is there something that you love the most, that you wrote your best 
best thing? Oh, I want to think my best sentences are ahead of me, but I don't know. There's a lot of things that I've enjoyed writing. I mean, I wrote, I ended up writing a book about Jimmy Connors called Jimmy Connors Saved My Life. And I'll, how would I put it? I'll stake that against any lengthy thing written about tennis, you know, and I, I feel pretty good about that. That took me, and by the way, I had that idea in 1982. It didn't happen until 2004. So um, in the latest edition of Racket, you have a, it's got to be 4,000 word story about Alice Marble. And, and I guess the takeaway for me, there's a few, but one of them is that she fabricated her biography. Would that be fair yes. to say? Can you yes. tell, tell the story of your story? If you don't this mind. is just amazing. It's like I did a story about a story about a story. It's so friggin' meta. But Alice Marble is a great tennis player. Alice Marble did some incredible things. She won Wimbledon. She won the U.S. Childhood number one in the world in 1939. And she was iconic. And she was like the first female great serve volleyer. I mean, she's kind of the, the precursor, the ancestor of Billie Jean King and Martina Navratilova. She mentored Billie Jean King for a time when Billie was a teenager. Alice Marble also did some incredible thing on behalf of Althea Gibson. She wrote a letter uh, advocating Althea Gibson should play Forest Hills when they wouldn't let a black person play there. And, and you know, this, is the, this is the equivalent of like uh, you know, Joe Montana saying, integrate the NFL. I mean, she it was an amazing thing for her to do. And, uh, and then she wrote some comic strips. But Alice Marble, we, 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 I, the one thing I was unable to ascertain was, was she a society player? Was she a, a celebutant? Only because, only because she was a great tennis player. She came from nothing. Mm -hmm. And yes, yeah, she was the darling of Hollywood in the late 30s. She's playing with Clark Gable and Carol Lombard. They're like the Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie of Hollywood in the 30s. And she's... She's playing a little customer tennis with them. She's hanging out at Hearst Castle, which is like the, uh, what, the Mar-a-Lago of, of the 1930s. Sure. So she's in there. She's, she's, she's on the cover of Life magazine, which was the prominent magazine. She's definitely, she's def she signed a contract for 25000 which is like the equivalent of about four fifty. So she got some good money in 1940. But, but then she lied in the well, so, so, so explain that. This is amazing. So now we fast forward and the last 20, 25 years of her life, she's living in the Palm Springs area in the desert alone. And she has some money, but she's, you know, it's a little bit the feeling like in Sunset Boulevard in the movie that time has maybe passed her by. So she works with a ghostwriter and she writes this autobiography that's published the year after she dies that not only talks about her tennis, it talks about some incredible adventures she had, that celebrities she met, um, movie premieres she attended, a marriage, and then that she was a spy, that she went into Europe during World War II and connected with this man she'd been involved with before and this whole little James Bond-like caper. And the book in 91 comes out and it gets a lot of positive reviews. I read it, I enjoyed it, I, and the reviews kind of, said, well, wow, did this happen or not? And but they kind of let off with a little slap of the wrist. It wasn't like if, if Joe DiMaggio had written a book like that and claimed those things, people said, what, what are you saying, Mr. Coffee? You're saying you, you were a spy? What are you talking about? And, and then 
go forward from 1991 to like 20, 30 years later, and people are thinking about optioning it. It's a movie. It, she's a spy. It's an incredible story. Um, this uh, biographer, Robert Weintraub, who's a fantastic writer, gets an advance to do the more third-person treatment book about Alice Marvel, and he can't find evidence for a lot of these things happening. So I wrote a story called Through the Looking Glass with Alice, saying, all right, let's, let's look at this. And I wanted, and, and part of me, it's like, wow, you're a liar. Like Winston Churchill said, history will be kind to me, for I shall write it. And she created this myth. And the sad thing is, she didn't have to. She did so many great things on her own, and yet she felt she had to. And I think that's a sad commentary about a marginalized woman, the role of tennis. You know, baseball players don't need to do this. Lou Gehrig retired in 1939. He gave that great speech, I'm the luckiest man on earth. And the legacy of Lou Gehrig lives on. I mean, he died of a horrible disease, but even things like the ice bucket challenge, Lou Gehrig, ALS, baseball, continues to make its mark on our minds. Tennis, Alice is feeling, I could see Alice in her 60s and 70s saying, who am I? Am I relevant? Do people think about me? You know, the players would come to Palm Springs once or twice a year. They'd, they'd give their little prop to Alice, but then she'd be, you know, the circus leaves town and she's alone. Felt bad for her. Alice Marble got lost in the sauce, but uh, Joel, you did a nice job sort of, you know, breaking all that down, I think. I thought it was a very nice article. Racket Magazine, everybody, you know how I feel about it. If you listen to my show, I think they're doing the best stuff in tennis. But you also wrote an article for them at the top of the year that really broke down the history of, in a sense, advertise like really the, the onset of, or the heyday maybe of advertising in tennis. Really the onset of Virginia Slim's involvement and in, in sponsorship of the women's tour um, and I love that article why don't you tell us a little bit about that article sure well again what happened what I did in that article I wanted to explore the um uh the role of advertising in tennis particularly in those late 60s 70s the boom years of the game the dawn of open tennis in 1968 and a big part of this article was the uh was the launch of the Virginia Slims tour in 1970 and it was a guy you talk about a perfect storm mid-late 60s, woman's consciousness is growing throughout America. Woman is starting to, woman's lib is starting to happen. And the people at Philip Morris say, hmm, let's create a product for them. And there's something kind of like neat and sort of wild. Yeah, let's, these women are, let's create a cigarette for the, especially for them, a cigarette. Yeah, they cause cancer, but they should have a product of their own. So let's come up with a, a slightly narrower cigarette just for them and we'll call it Virginia Slims. And they introduced this in 1968 and they come up with this great jingle, this, this slogan, you've come a long way, baby. And it's kind of, it's kind of simultaneously like a compliment, but sort of sexist, right? Baby, you've come a long way, baby. Light it up, light up a cigarette. So two years later. And also, also too, in the article for our listeners, the article, the imagery of the, of the, of the of the print ad is is the artwork in the in it and there's literally pictures of like women working on farms in the tobacco fields and then there's the model you know with like dressed dressed in like a pencil skirt and looking in a beret smoking a cigarette with her leg up 
and it says you've come a long way, baby. I mean, th- I mean, this shit wouldn't fly right now, that's for sure. Right, but then what happens, and this this is has the this is where the tennis comes in. Uh, this is where the tennis comes in in a neat way. In the spring of 1970, uh, President Nixon signs a law that says you can't advertise cigarettes on television starting in 1971. So now we've got this product, Philip Morris, and now we need, our audience, our target audience is, you know, mildly young, upscale woman. Then at the same time, all these years, World Tennis Magazine publisher and founder Gladys Heldman is, is, uh, is advocating, is helping start things, and, they, and they, for various, a number of things happen in the summer and fall of 1970 to start some women's tournaments and to get a sponsor. And Gladys, for years, had been cultivating the CEO of Philip Morris, Joe Coleman, because other brands were advertising. Marlboro makes a big, big statement at the U.S. Open. They buy this big billboard scoreboard at the 1969 U.S. Open. And then in 1970, it works out that Virginia Slims is going to sponsor the first kind of breakaway women's pro tournament in Houston. And, and then all this mo- a lot of money that had been earmarked for television advertising, let's put it into pro tennis. And beginning in 1971, the full circuit comes, and Billie Jean King makes $100,000, which was a major, major statement for a female athlete in 1971. And, and they're on their way. So it's this, and, and again, some players, will, they, they know it was a Faustian bargain. We made a deal with the devil. It's like cigarettes, athletes. They were never asked to endorse them, but they, they were the advertisement. I mean, and for years, uh, I remember this when I was a kid, that, Virgin- that was a circuit, the Virginia Slim circuit. And that's, without that, that that's, that's the birth of the whole women's sports movement. 500%. I mean, the Virginia Slims tennis in 1977, 1976, 1978, that was the only thing there was. I guess my last question to you is, um, do you, are, are you in the middle of a book? Do you have anything else coming out that we should know about? I have I have some ideas, some pieces I'm working on, but nothing. No, no. I ha- I have some ideas for a book in my head, but I haven't. I, it would be unfair to even myself to say quite what they are and where I'm gonna go with it. I mean, I have, you know, there's also there's such a there's such a hit on all of us energy wise these days to kind of like yeah, I'm doing my work, trying to stay healthy, you know, trying to you know wear my mask. One thing and, at a time. That's right. Uh, Joel, you've come a long way, baby. I, I got to tell you, uh, incredible uh, career in tennis. Um, what's the significance of your involvement with the Hall of Fame? What is it that makes you the historian at large? Well, um, I think we just, it was neat for the Hall of Fame to come up with this idea. I, I do a lot of writing for the Hall of Fame. I've done, I've, I've done a lot of um, oral history re- interviews with legends so we could have some detailed documentation of of some of tennis legends and these hall of famers and and so people can uh look back and see what their great stories are i have a real i was a history major for what it's worth and i really have an appreciation for like texture and context and weaving stories you know it's like when i watch roger federer play i'm seeing ken rosewall i mean and i want to bring that to tennis as much as possible because it's just like the way when when people watch lebron they see michael when people saw Michael, they saw magic. You know, it's like that. And I think those other sports have always done that a lot better than tennis. Tennis tends to kind of devour itself. You know, there are a lot of people you and I know who are like, well, really, who's Pete Sampras? And so my mission is always, this even goes back to why I was writing about Connors. 
Communism is my way of saying to people, you need to understand what the sport is really about. You don't understand the sport. The sport isn't just a, a merchant's ivory lawn party, people hitting over a garden party. It's combat, it's personalities, it's, it's people. And I love the chance, and, that, and that's so, the Hall of Fame gives me the chance to write things. We did a piece earlier this year on uh, times when tennis has been interrupted. What did tennis do during World War I and World War II? And they uh, created some great visuals for it. And I just like looking at these aspects of the game of the, of the ribbons and the textures and the layers and this mosaic, all these people. Let's move into the fourth set. This is the 10 ball scramble. We do not do a deep dive. I say it, you say what comes into your mind. You ready? Yes, sir. The greatest tennis pros. Oh, Rex Bellamy, British writer. Wrote a lot in the 60s and 70s. Elegant, thoughtful, fantastic. Is there a piece that is your favorite? Is there something that has been written about tennis that you find to be the, the best there is? The best singer? I thought the David Foster Wallace piece on Michael Joyce was very, very good. Really interesting. Is there, the, is there a favorite tennis writer? Well, like I said, Rex Bellamy, this British writer, wrote a book called the Tennis Set, he wrote a book called 30 Love, which were these fantastic portraits of players, 30 players he really liked. No long book by him, he was more of a newspaper journalist, but just a certain elegance, a certain compression, a little playful metaphor, and just constantly, I, 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 bring his, I bring a book of his to every tournament I go to, and I put it under my pillow sometimes, thinking some of his stuff will go into my head. Tennis Week. Oh, Tennis Week Magazine, Gene Scott. I wrote for him a lot, and I was, Glad I got to know Gene and had the chance to kind of earn a spot on his varsity for a while. How important of that was that magazine to tennis? I miss that magazine uh, intensely, by the way. Played a neat role. I think of Gene Scott as kind of like the William F. Buckley grand patrician of the game and kind of a gadfly willing to speak his mind and willing to let other people have a, a wide range of voices just to kind of be in the mix. Your favorite tournament as media? Favorite tournament as media? Wimbledon. Why? Wimbledon. Just love being around it, the, the feel of Wimbledon, the feel of the grass walking around, the, 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 the light and the, and the green and being in a great match. And every seat there is pretty darn good. So you're always feeling in on it. And, and the sound of the grass is like no other sound than hard courts or clay. Do you have a feel for what the favorite tournament is for the players, your opinion? I think that varies from every five years there becomes a shift as each of these events. I mean, for example, of late, the Australian Open has gotten a lot of neat praise of the majors because they take such good care of the players. So it's an arms race. So now it's going to be up to the other tournaments. I think it also depends on which ones they do best at and, and things with family and results. Is there a best fan tournament? I think Indian Wells is a pretty darn good fan tournament. It's got that spring training feeling of intimacy and significance all at once. Your favorite city? Oh, my. You mean, God, that's like the four children. I think I've come to really like uh, Melbourne. I think I like going to that tournament. I like walking and being in the city and going to the tournament in the same place. Your favorite tournament? Is it, is it Australian? No. They all vary. I can't, that's like asking a parent who they got four kids and which is their favorite. I've had some of my best experiences at Indian Wells because I'm from Southern California and it's so intimate. Your favorite court? Oh, oh wait, oh. My favorite court 
Let's see. Roland Garros Bull Ring. Pretty darn good court to watch a match in. And that's and that's no longer. I know. So there you go. So we'll have, we'll find another. I've come to enjoy the grandstands at the U.S. Open. The new grandstands. I kind of enjoy. Have enjoyed that. It's a great court. That new grandstand is a fantastic court. There's no doubt about it. Your favorite racket. My favorite racket is uh, historically is the Dunlop Max Play Fort. The wood racket, arguably the most beautiful racket ever, and kind of a left-hander's delight. People like Rod Laver, Tony Roach, John McEnroe. So all people who I kind of, I'm a left-handed tennis player, kind of modeled some of my own little game after. I heard very crafty. Um, and your grip size, Joel? Uh, four and three-eighths with an overgrip. Let's move into our fifth and final set. Uh, this is the king of the court. If there was something you could change in the sport with just a swing of the racket, what would it be? How about putting names on every player's shirt every time at the tournament all day long so that any of us are walking at the tournament, we see who those players are. We're seeing them practice. We know that's Souza from Brazil. We know that's, um, you know, Batista Gu. We know who that people are, and that's, that's one big wave on the path to knowing them. That's the thing I would like to see happen. Names on the shirt, Joel Drucker. Names on the shirt. Yes, sir. Names on the shirt. Wave the wand. Let that happen. Hey, man, you know, one thing before we say goodbye, you're really a pay-it-forward journalist. You're a pay-it-forward guy. You've always been very complimentary and encouraging to a lot of people. You read our stuff, and you listen to our shows, and um, I always appreciate the feedback, and I thank you very much. Um, and I've been always reciprocated as well as you know, as, I don't do as good of a job as you do with that. So I want to thank you now. Um, you're welcome. I really appreciate it. Um, and you're going to be, I assume, with three or four screens watching the tennis for the next? Yeah, I think you and I, I think, we, I, think I saw you did a tweet recently, and I think I, I, I felt that with you. It's like, yeah, I got, my, I got my computer, I got my laptop, I got my phone. We're going to all have our own little personal control rooms, aren't we, Craig? Do you, do you go to four? How many do you go to? Will you I go think I'm going to start with three, but if I need to go to four, I'll go to four. I mean, we're all got to be ready, right? We all got to be ready. Uh, Joel Drucker, uh, you catch him uh, writing almost daily reporting for the tennis.com. And as I said, I think that, you know, the stuff he does for Racket Magazine is uh, top level, world class. My man, pleasure talking with you. I'm glad we got to do this and you are released. Thank you. Huge thank you to Joel Drucker, and thank you to Sergio Tacchini. See what they're doing at SergioTacchini.com. Use my code CRAIG30 in all caps at checkout to receive 30% off of your order. We just re-upped the tennis t-shirt of 2020, the Quarantine Classic. It is a throwback to the shirts that we used to get as kids at tournaments, the junior tournaments. We're taking orders for the Blanc, the Terrabat 2, and the Ver, which is green. Shoot me a note if you want to get on that program. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We will be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released. <laughs>